Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Somebody set us up the bomb. All your base are belong to us. You have no chance to survive. Make your time. Move Zig for great justice. Don't want your software text to be like this. Now, there was a time you could write software for just the English-speaking market and expect your company to do well. That time has long passed. And to be truly successful, your software has to be able to work for people speaking a variety of languages and dialects. In this episode, we're going to discuss some of the things that can happen to your software as you make it ready for a global audience, including some misconceptions to avoid so that your content doesn't sound like a badly translated video game. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, uh, I thought I would explain the impetus for this episode. I got the bright idea about a week ago um, when I had some downtime to play Skyrim, but switch the language to Russian. Oh, well. And uh, yeah, I did a lot better than I thought I would have. I understood a Mm -hmm. lot of what was going on, you know, in conversations and all. I was getting it for the most part, honestly. Although it's definitely a stress test when somebody's yelling in Russian at you and coming at you with an axe and you're like, okay, are they, is that a bad guy? (laughs) You know, know, and you're like, you're like, got the bow pulled back and you're like, ah. See if I can process this before he gets, you know. So that was yeah. that was a little amusing. But uh, you know, it's easy when it's a video game. And even though I've been involved in internationalization efforts for several products in the past, I thought it would be a good idea to kind of talk about some of this stuff a little bit because a lot of developers are running into it. In fact, we deal with it at work as well. Hmm. So that's kind of where that's coming from. So how about you? Well, like speaking of diversity and internationalization, I will be speaking at We Rock IT Conference in Huntsville, which is a uh, diversity conference down there. And it's really cool. I'm going to be talking about failure in development. So it's kind of funny that I've been working on that talk. That's one I've given before. And it's I enjoy it because it's got a lot of audience participation, but it sort of fits with the topic a little bit here. In my personal life, I moved my guitar lessons to later in the day on Saturdays. I was asked to be in a video for church. Huh. I'm playing a guitar player. I get to wear black nail polish and eyeliner. So cool. (laughs) And the recording was set at the same time as my lesson. So I asked my instructor if he had any later times. And he had a 3.30 appointment open. Uh, So I was talking to Amanda about it because I was asking her when she was working and stuff. And she said, you know what? No matter what shift she's working at the brewery, she'll always be at work at 3.30 on Saturdays. So if she works the opening shift or the closing shift, it's that's like their crossover time. Oh, yeah, the interchange. She's, yeah, yeah, she's like, so if your lesson is then, I'll always be at the brewery. So it's not like, it's not going to be where you have to like cut out from hanging out to go to your lesson when I work the evening shift. I'm like, huh, that's a good point. So I'm just going to go ahead and move all of my lessons to that time. It's pretty cool. Speaking of church, I've been learning a lot uh, about audio lately. We now have a head of sort of sound 
and audio under our technical lead. And he's been coming to the worship team practice and training me on some advanced skills and problem solving on the soundboard. Last week, he totally borked the EQ, then played just a random sort of EDM song and had me fix it on the fly. Nice. That was so much fun. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, I have an ear for it. I just need training to understand what I'm hearing because at one point, he stepped out of the booth to listen on the floor and I heard a, a ring just sort of where it was messed up. And so I'm over here trying to fix it figure out where it is and he walks back up and I was like hey did you did you hear that ring in so-and-so's vocals he's like I'm really proud that you heard the ring it wasn't in the vocals it was in the bass because I went and messed with the sub in the room <laughs> <laughs> he's like you got an ear for it we just got to train your ear man and what's funny is I never would have thought I could do something like this before I, I learned programming learning to code And then helping others learn it because it kind of comes naturally to me. And then seeing others struggle with things that just make sense to me and then running into issues that I don't understand and struggling with those, it kind of shown me that things that I thought were pure talents are actually skills that can be learned. Yep. So guys, if you're listening to this and you're struggling to learn a concept, be it coding or otherwise, just keep pushing. I can tell you just from experience, you'll be amazed at how much you can learn when you really start thinking of things as skills like that. So with that said, let's go ahead and get on into book club. Chapter 10 of The Healthy Programmer, Get Fit, Feel Better, and Keep Coding by Joe Kuttner is titled Refactoring Your Fitness. In the intro, Kuttner talks about John Gill, who is known for his contributions to rock climbing, specifically bouldering. He talks about how Gill developed an all-around exercise routine to train for climbing the boulders in North Georgia. The first section talks about warming up. He emphasizes the importance of preparing your body for intense exercise by increasing the blood flow to your muscles and improving the range of motion of your joints. He goes into how combining aerobic exercise with complex movements improves cognitive functioning. Then in the next section, discusses the dimensions of fitness, body composition, cardiovascular, flexibility, muscular endurance, and muscle strength. The following section discusses unit testing your fitness. And in it, he lists out several tests, including run, walk a mile, push-ups, half sit-ups, sit and reach, and body composition. For each one, he provides the 50th percentile based on age and sex as a goal. In the final section, he talks about how to improve your abilities. So how to work from where you are toward that 50th percentile goal. In this section, he provides specific training regimens for cardio and strength training. Key takeaways from this chapter are to warm up before exercising, participate in sports with complex movement that not only work your body, but work your mind, and know your BMI and sort of where you are and where you want to go. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we grabbed an iTunes review from West TK saying, Great Newbie Advice Digest. 
I've been listening to Will and Beach for a few years now. The consistency and breadth of this show is awesome and a perfect complement to more technical podcasts. Even though some episodes wander towards back-end topics I never touch, there's plenty of content to satisfy anyone. My only complaint is the length of the episodes. The intro and outro are pretty long and detract from the core content. Regardless, this podcast is on my subscription list and will probably stay that way as long as they keep going. Thank you for the review. Our goal is to produce content that touches all aspects of what it means to be a complete developer. And we do try to keep our show around the 55-minute mark, though sometimes it's a little bit longer or a little bit shorter based on the topic and if we get going. I will say earlier on, if you've been listening for a while, you'll know as we were getting used to podcasting and getting to know our audience, we would spend more time in the intro segments, especially talking about what was going on with this sort of showing that we're not talking heads, we're real people. And now it's just sort of like catching up with your friends. At least uh, that's what the people who I know that listen to the show tell me. They're like, yeah, how's this going or that going? I'm like, oh, we recorded that four weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> like people will ask me, I'll run into them because like I, I see them once a month or something. I'll run into them at a meetup and like, oh, how's this going for you? And I was like, Oh, right. We we did talk about that four weeks ago and it happened the week before that. So it, yeah. it takes me a little bit. Yeah. It's like reading the news in the paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like like old people. <laughs> but uh I say hey, that as somebody that reads a paper. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for, for sending us that. Oh, hey, uh, on that, really quickly, um, there is a thing I signed up for, uh TDLR where they send you like news clips and it's like each day it comes in. It's great. Cause I like, I look at it every morning and I just kind of go through it and you can, the TDLR for each one of them. And then you can go into the article if you want. It's kind of nice, but anyway, check that out. Send us an email to water bottle at complete developer podcast.com. Cause we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you guys. If you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. Actually, I think comments are down on the website because we were dealing with some massive spamming. We also post all our episodes to Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And we're on Instagram and Tumblr and we will take comments from there too. If you leave us one on Instagram, I haven't checked Tumblr in forever, so can't promise that. I should do that. <laughs> Join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. We get new members all the time. Guys, your advertisement could be here. Well, if you like the show and would like to advertise on here, send us an email to adverts at completedeveloperpodcast.com. We have short-term, long-term, and other sponsorship opportunities. Reach out to us and let us help you reach the people who you are serving. In an increasingly global, multilingual, and multicultural world, it becomes ever more important that your software be usable by people who are using different languages. While you might think that making your application work well for non-English speakers simply requires you to do some string replacement and call it a day, there are a variety of pitfalls waiting for you if you try this. Expanding your audience to multiple languages is either a major development effort on an existing product or involves adding a lot of support infrastructure up front on a new one. It adds complexity to every phase of product ideation, planning, development, testing, documentation, support, marketing, and even sometimes deployment, which is really interesting because we're going to get into all of those next week when we talk about the software development lifecycle. 
In short, getting internationalization and localization right will completely change your development process in a profound way. Like many things that provide you with a significant advantage, it's worth doing properly to make sure that you get the best results you can. In this episode, we'll discuss some basic things that you need to know about internationalization and localization, as well as some misconceptions that are out there. This is meant to only be a high-level guide, not an exhaustive treatise on how to internationalize an app. These things are processes and they're not events. It takes a while. So Will wrote this in the form of questions. And questions that sort of uh, the pointy-haired boss would say. Yeah, almost rhetorical. Yeah, but the questions that uh, people are thinking of when they say there are no dumb questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was intended to be, you know, kind of your guide to keeping your boss from deciding that this is really easy. Yeah. And, you know, you should be able to just do it in a couple of days on a an app that's been in development for 20 years. Mm-hmm because it's not going to happen. I did want to start out with a little bit of definition. I don't want to do too much of that because I think it's boring. I'm sorry, but, dude. Uh, you, you, you said in development for 20 years. I'm like, is that thing ever going to make it to production? You meant to say in production for 20 years. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know, man. I've been on some apps that like, you know, I've, been, I've worked on apps that, that have been sold to people before they started developing. I believe that, yeah. Sometimes you and get a good idea. Like, and it was sold years before. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, bro. <laughs> yeah. that, you can't do that. But um, you know, the same kind of folks that do that will do internationalization the wrong way. So yeah, string replacement, definitely not a good idea. You're going to very quickly run into problems doing that. In fact, that if you're going to do something, if you're going to do it the wrong way, that's the best wrong way to do it because you'll hit the brick wall immediately. Yeah. So with that said, let's get into some uh, definitions. So we're going to start out with what is internationalization and what is localization. And we're getting our references from w3.org because that's the best place to do this kind of thing. Localization refers to the adaptation of a product application or document content to meet the language, cultural, and other requirements of a specific target market. In other words, a locale. Localization is sometimes written as L10N, where the number 10 is the number of letters between L and N in the word localization. It's kind of leet speak. It is kind of, and you know, like, but the, the W3.org uh, site just says it's the number of letters between L and N. And I'm like, no, it isn't. <laughs> you, you know, like, you know, like, you know, it's one of those things you look at and you're like, that, that's not right. Y'all so, didn't yeah. see it, but, but Will's Added. head twitched when he did that. Yeah, so like I had to add that little clause there to go, hey, you know, we're not that illiterate, all right? <laughs> you know, we're working on it. <laughs> Hooked on phonics works for us sometimes. Localization is best thought of as the process of making your application available to users in a different locale. Internationalization is the design and development of a product, application, or document content that enables easy localization for target audiences that vary in culture, region, or language. So basically, localization is making it available for where you are or for a specific area. Internationalization is making it available for many localizations. Right. So localization is the abstract 
hammer factory and internationalization is abstract hammer factory factory, factory. factory. yeah <laughs> for, for you java types so i just localized <laughs> it for you <laughs> hey we do that all the time don't we yeah we kind of <laughs> do <laughs> that would make our uh, our outlines the internationalization because they don't have all these little things that we throw in there yeah they just have the information to be localized Probably just as well because people look at it and go, man, these guys are, <laughs> you know, like, be like, can we get riddling in a dart form and kind of <laughs> you know, get these guys? You know? <laughs> so anyway, this typically entails things such as separating assets that are user facing from source code, which is not, and then loading the correct assets based on locale. So instead of, for instance, having your error message that shows up in a pop-up in a string, Mm-hmm. Now you got to load it from somewhere because you don't know what language they're necessarily using until runtime. Yeah. You want to think of localization as a repeating process and internationalization as an ongoing process that supports it. Right. We've, we've kind of given a few different examples, some goofier than others, but keep your app internationalizable and then you can more easily localize it. Yeah, and this probably doesn't ever mean that localization is going to be a perfectly smooth process. I've literally never seen that happen, mm-hmm. even if the languages are very close together. You know, even if you switch from American English to British English, there are enough differences in places to cause problems. Oh, yeah. My very first trip in college over to the UK, they gave us a sheet of things not to say. Yeah. Because over there, those phrases had a different meaning that was not what you intended. Right. And what's really funny is certain things they say over there would be considered very crass here. Yeah, it would start a fight. And over there, it's like, hey, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, we were thinking of exactly the same word yes. on that one, too. And we're family-friendly podcast, so we won't share that with you. Yeah. Um, if you want to learn it, go to England. Um <laughs> And uh, our our British friends who have traveled probably know that too. So, yeah. (laughs) So the first of these questions, can't I just use Google Translate? Yeah. As somebody in a foreign language class, let me tell you that that is pants on head stupid. That will not work at all, ever, at any time, not even a little bit. So just to prove this, Google's translation is really lossy. Mm-hmm. from English to any other language and back. So what you do is you take a decent-sized piece of text and put it in Google Translate, and then you pick a commonly used language to translate into. You know, some, you know, pick a European language you're familiar with if you got one, or, you know, it's even better if you go to, like, languages in the Far East, like your Chinese or some of those. But, you know, you hit the button to get the translation, then you hit the button that flips it, and now you get to see what that, translates back to an English. So it's like playing a game of telephone Mm -hmm. with Google Translate. And the stuff that you see there, if you've ever seen like, you know, the really, you know, like if you've ever been in a a, kind of downscale Chinese restaurant, which by the way, are, are some of the best ones out there. The menus, the way that stuff is said there, I think a lot of them, that's kind of what they do. So if you want that level of translation, Google Translate will do that for you. So Google Translate, is useful for a few things. One is if you are 
translating into your language and you're expecting it to be lossy. Like you're not looking for the specific exact phrases you're looking for or the specific idioms, I guess, is a really where you get a lot of lossiness. But if you're just looking to get the gist of the message or if it's like you're, you're trying to figure out what someone is saying or something like that before Facebook had the translate button on there. Yeah. It's good for um, translating to you, not from you. Yes. Yes. That's very true. Yeah. The other thing is, is there are concepts in other languages that we don't have in English. Mm -hmm. Some really good examples of this. You'll see in most European languages are stuff like gendering of nouns. You'll have verbs that have a whole bunch of different weird cases that we don't have in English or that English has that they don't have, or you'll have Russian verbs of motion are terrible. So like there's a different verb for a bird flying in a direction versus a butterfly flying around. Yeah. That kind of stuff. And then you have like second person where you have, uh, you know, they have this in Icelandic, you know, where you've got like a nice way to say something to somebody and a more just normal slangish kind of way. Mm -hmm. And so like, those things disappear when you translate with Google Translate. Yeah, I know like in French and uh, the other Romantic languages that I, I know a little bit of, when you've got like different levels of formality Yeah, in your speech. That's exactly what that is. Yeah, which we have in English. It's just we don't always think about it that way. Yeah. A, a good example of this, we were driving to lunch today and our children's minister had sent a text about something to Amanda and she was responding back to her and she like responded and said it. And she's like, Oh my goodness, that was way too informal for her. Cause she's like, <laughs> and I'm like, what'd you say? And she told me, I'm like, that doesn't sound very informal. She's like, yeah, but it's to pastor Frida. And I'm like, yeah, that's the way I talk to her. And she's like, you're special. <laughs> Yeah. It's also you like people (laughs) water finds its own level and people's expectations find their own level, (laughs) you know? Well, I just find it fun to speak informally with the people who are very formal and formally with the people who are very informal. Just to confuse them. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But you don't want to do that to your users. right? No, no. That's, that's the thing. Like, yeah, that's sort of what I was getting at. Yeah, and this is why you don't use Google Translate. I mean, the other thing is it does not do idioms at all. Mm-mm. And you'll get all kinds of weird stuff. And just to, as an example of, of idioms, right? If we, in America, we tell somebody, you know, where they can go because we're tired of their, their junk, right? We're tired of hearing them. We have a phrase we use for that, right? Mm-hmm. In Persian languages, like, you know, you know like in Iran, they'll say something like death to America. Well, they're not saying death to America. They're saying to heck with America. It's equivalent to us saying that. It's not the same thing. It's it's an idiom for it. And so if you translate an idiom, you get surprised. Yeah. Because now they think you're serious. Oh, it's <laughs> it's really fun to do that with like the the thing you were talking about earlier with like the back and forth, like translate a list of idioms into a foreign language and then back and see what kind of how they translate it. Yeah. Like it can be interesting. Another fun thing to do is to look up the meanings of tattoos that people get like in foreign yeah, languages, especially in like Chinese kanji. Or the, <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, it's like, you know, some, I saw, and you know, like 
I can recognize a few from having Japanese and from experience with Chinese martial arts. And so like, I mean, I remember seeing a girl walking by and she had the character for water tattooed on her arm. And I was like, either somebody told you it meant something else or, you know, <laughs> like you're a waitress and that's all you bring people. I don't, it was, it was really strange. So yeah, it's really easy to do this and to, to miss it. So you can't use automated translations like this. It's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can use it to check things. Yeah. To make sure that, you know, people aren't putting stuff in there that is going to make a company look bad, but you can't use it to create. Mm-hmm. So next, dates don't change though, right? Right. So if uh, you went through our three episode series on dates and times, you probably have a strong suspicion about the answer to this one. The way dates are formatted varies a lot. This impacts both dates that are input as well as those being output. And by the way, sometimes things make round trips mm-hmm. or, you know, or go into some other system and then they get messed with and then it comes back into some other part of your system. And if you're not very cautious, you can really get nailed by this. It can also get really fun if you have a bit of an old school dev shop where people were like, ah, I don't want to have to mess with all the formulas for dates. I'll just put it as a string. <laughs> In the database, right? Like that, I mean, and I, I saw the look on your face when I said that, but I've worked in environments in the last 10 years that have had that. Yeah. And it's, you know, and a lot of times they can't fix it because they've got it on client sites and they've got invalid dates in the system that you can't convert to a date. Mm-hmm. And they don't want it to be null, so they're just toast. Oh, yeah. And searching by dates as strings, that's something I have seen Oh yeah, people try to do that's just like, oh my goodness, what? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. Now imagine where somebody shifts the day in the month mm-hmm. and they're doing it the yeah, the actual more sensible way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like compared to how we do it in America, you know, or they have a different calendar altogether. Like they may be using the Hebrew calendar, for instance, or, you know, I think the Islamics, you know, there's a different Islamic calendar and I think there's a different one in China and Japan's got different settings and you got to deal with all that in your app possibly co-mingled. Mm-hmm. So Amanda teaches ESL to kids in China through this company that she she works with. And not that long ago was the Chinese New Year. Yep. And so she was talking about it. I'm like, wait, for them, wouldn't it just be New Year? And she's like, yeah, in the slides on their presentation, it says Chinese New Year. And I was like, what? Well, when you're teaching, do you call it New Year or Chinese New Year? And she's like, well, I started calling it New Year, but apparently the kids over there know that in America it's it's different. Yeah. And so like if you if you called it that, but it's just it's interesting like how that falls. Like we had that whole conversation not that long ago about like, all right, well, when is New Year? And, you know, over here we, we call it Chinese New Year, but over there is it just New Year? Yeah. (laughs) And this is the kind of stuff that Americans especially don't think of because we are such a large country and, you know, you can travel for like two days west of here by car and you're still in America. Yeah. You know, well, maybe not the way you drive, but (laughs) (laughs) and then we've got other friends. I think they could make it for four or five days because they'd get lost. But the fact is, is we don't have this scenario that like they have in Europe where you drive a few hundred miles and all of a sudden you're in another country. 
Yeah. And they speak a different language. And, you know, like we just, we're not used to that and used to different systems. And so it's really easy for this to sneak up on us. It also gets fun when people have dates and times stored and they're not paying attention to things like time zones and all those kind of things and how it was input. Mm-hmm. And so they're making assumptions about how it's parsed or they try to sort. Yeah. And it's dates from completely different systems. Like you're tracing, you know, a package, how it's moving. Mm-hmm. around the planet you know you're in a shipping company or something and you try to do that and you've got this wrong now it looks like it arrived before it left and so you're either looking for marty mcfly or you're looking for a dba <laughs> well you know if it crosses the international dateline it could depending on how fast it travels actually arrive before it left well yeah if you're not taking time zones into account and all that <laughs> but uh yeah this is why we do this <laughs> now Another fun one is people will say, but the keyboard codes are the same, right? This is also not true. And sometimes very strange things happen. Uh, for in- <laughs> I'm sorry. For instance, um, on my keyboard right here, I've got stickers for the Russian characters. And I'm actually trying to learn to type in Russian, which, by the way, if, you, if you're over 40 and you're learning to type, that's like, it's so much worse now. <laughs> but... <sighs> The letters that look the same may be in different places. For instance, the only character that's the same on both, you know, keyboards is C. Mm-hmm. That's the only one that's got the same character. So, like, the character that looks like H is where Y is. So, well, how similar is it to the Dvorak keyboard? Uh, I don't know. Um, I did notice that the most common ones are on the home row. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, oh, great. So people can type faster in Russian. Actually, they can't because their words are like as long as your arm. <laughs> so it doesn't, you know, like they completely lost that one. <laughs> they just had to do that to get it uh, up to par. So, yeah, this will make a, a huge difference. Now, before you get into that, I, I was just thinking when when you were reading that of the prank. And that's why I chuckled a little bit of there is a Greek symbol that looks question mark great question mark that looks like like a semicolon semicolon. yeah and you can really mess with someone who is a uh any language that's c-based that uses semicolons to end a statement because they (laughs) will not be able to figure out (laughs) yeah it's a great prank to play if uh if you you know aren't gonna be around get away with it (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so now this this stuff doesn't just impact how you read keystrokes, but it also impacts things like your documentation, menu shortcuts, mm-hmm. shortcut key combinations, that kind of stuff. And what's even more fun is you probably need to look and see what common keyboard shortcuts look like for other countries. It might be the same or it might not. Oh. By the way, Windows Notepad does not do this correctly as far as I can tell. So like you do control V to paste. You know, and it says that up in the thing, if you've got it on Cyrillic, and you know, say, you know, control V, but it's actually M. It's control M because of where, where the key or where the, uh, the keys are on the keyboard. It's still the same key in this case, but it's, if you're prompting somebody, you're now wrong because they don't have that on their keyboard. Mm. They don't have a V. <laughs> They've got a capital B that makes that sound, but they don't have a, a V. So that gets to be really, really difficult as well. Next, I can still sort stuff the same way. Yeah? Right. <laughs> yeah. 
So again, we're going to refer to our previous episode on the difficulties with strings, which also tells you that you know the answer to this one. First of all, you're going to have to assume that Unicode is going to be in the mix. Now, most modern languages are going to tolerate Unicode. Mm -hmm. um, some of the older ones don't, or if you have the wrong kind of string. So like in Delphi, uh, if you're doing a, I think it's an ANSI string, you, know, you get a pointer to it and you're doing manipulations on it, but it's actually, you know, Unicode. Oh yeah. You can get surprised by that. There's, there's stuff like that, that that'll jump out and get you. Oh, that makes sense. Cause um, we're doing C plus plus in my uh, class in grad school right now. And it's kind of fun. I just took a test on it and it's uh, we were talking about, or, one of the things was about like character manipulation, like car manipulation and how you can like add. So like, yeah, if you do like lowercase a plus two, we'll give you lowercase C. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And C plus plus will give you D. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really terrible joke. And I apologize to the audience. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> text may also be printed from right to left. So it may not look right to your programmers when they sort it because they're not looking at it the right way, mm -hmm. especially if it's justified, you know, both ways or something like that. So that can be interesting. It can also really quickly become non-trivial to sort a bunch of names or other text, especially when the items in the list are intermixed between locales. So Sort orders for characters that look the same are also not preserved across cultures. So you get bit by this a lot. And so if you've got a list of names and it's it's mixed from a whole bunch of different places, it's going to look wrong to anybody who's looking at it. And it may be right. Or more than likely, it's going to be wrong and it also looks wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, and this gets even more fun when you start getting things like case sensitivity into the mix because there's languages that don't do that. Mm-hmm. So now the next thing that you'll hear is at least I don't have to change symbols, colors, and that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> well, symbols are culturally dependent as well. For instance, a symbol of a woman in a skirt might be an appropriate emoticon in certain European cultures while being scandalous at best in some other cultures. And, you know, if you're in the Highlands of Scotland they don't know that it's a woman. <laughs> like, is that a kilt? Like, you know, they got, they got to look for the plaid in that little icon. You know? So you know, I mean, like legitimately, like, and I know the Scotsmen are not going to get really confused on that, but there's other cultures that are going to take offense to things that are done a certain way that seems normal to you and vice versa. Yeah. This goes back to what we were talking about with idioms earlier when like, I had a whole list of stuff not to say. There was a second list of things not to do. Yeah. There are certain things like in the UK, holding up like a two backwards is extremely offensive. Like with the back of your hand. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. The, the dorsal <laughs> to, yeah. Get, to get medical here. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what do you mean backward? <laughs> but the, but, but, on the ventral side, it means the number two. Dorsally, if you face that way towards someone, it is the equivalent of the middle finger in the United States. And like, there was a list of things like expressions and things like that, that are, you know, you might just be saying two 
and you got to make sure you do it the right way. Yeah. Or a lot of times they count, they start counting with their thumb to avoid that. Yeah. It's weird because like a lot of images, icons, and symbols either contain or are based on our own language. So it's not just things that cause offense, but things that cause confusion. For instance, an upward pointing arrow with the letter N at the top is going to be interpreted by an English speaker as, hey, this is the direction north. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's fine. But if you look at a Polish compass, like from World War II, it doesn't have that. It has a P. And I can't pronounce the Polish word correctly, so I'm not going to try that. But it's different in other places. And we have things that are linguistically derived that make it into our icons that we don't think about. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, these differences will come out in the images that you use for core application concepts, and they'll confuse your users at best. Now, you also have to be careful in regard to colors. For instance, white in America is often associated with weddings, purity, that kind of stuff. While red is a warning sign, it's a danger sign. However, in the Far East, white is often associated with death, whereas red is associated with luck and vitality. Yeah. This means not only being required to change colors, but having to change the other colors that interact with them in your design so that the system is usable, readable. I mean, I have seen some... Works with colorblindness. Yeah. And I, I have seen some websites where... I had to either turn on or turn off dark theme or I had to highlight the text. Yeah. <laughs> you mean like MySpace? Because <laughs> you old. <laughs> well, no, I'm talking about that's, that's recent ones where it was just like, you know, like gray and light blue. Ooh, yeah. And like, it just, it, ugh, it gives you a headache to look at. And so you have to be be cautious when doing that to make sure that, all right, you know, not only are you conscious of the symbology behind a color in a particular culture, but also that your colors go together and they provide enough contrast to read between background and foreground, but also they, you know, you got your whole color wheel and like we could have a whole episode on color. It's in the backlog. Is it? On colors, yeah. I might do that one. Just on the whole color theory, I think. If not, I'll add it. Yeah, it'll be in there eventually. Yeah. Yeah, the thing is, is all this stuff is holistic, right? So um, you also run into other things. So like with symbols in general. So stuff like mailboxes, electrical outlets, hand gestures, like you mentioned before, uh, street signs, they vary between cultures. This means that icons based on them will have to do the same or you'll risk confusing the users. So if you see a European outlet and you're in an American application and you've not been to Europe, you're like, what is that? Is that a gas nozzle? Like you have no idea. You don't have a, you don't have a cultural reference for that. So you're going to be confused. Now think somebody that's using an app that's poorly translated in addition to having this problem. They're just going to be lost. Mm -hmm. So next at least the legal requirements. Oh, I can't even do this with a straight face. Everybody. Yeah, I know. It's it's uh, like I had a hard time even writing that one because <laughs> I've heard some stuff, you know, where people seem to think that the laws of California or Arkansas, for that matter, um, apply everywhere. And I don't know how people really get to this point, you know, after like the invention of the automobile. 
because you can go to the places where the law is different. But for some reason, there's people that still think this way. Um, the legal requirements are never the same. Mm-hmm. Like you just might as well just hang that up. Like even within one country in general, like you're going to have a hard time with that. Now, if you switch states in the U.S. or countries in the EU, legal requirements around all kinds of stuff change. So this means stuff like security policies, data sharing rules, uh, you know, what's allowed in a contract and what's not, right? Like you could have a phrase in a written contract or an end-user license agreement that invalidates the whole thing because it's considered unconscionable. Mm-hmm. And they all get considered in the context of whatever culture you're targeting, not your culture. Yeah. Sometimes the legal requirements will force major changes in design as well. Uh, for instance, you might not want to show the flag of Tibet in an application targeted for China. Right. Whereas you may have people in Tibet that want to see that. Yeah. You might also run into legal trouble if you're showing things like national boundaries, time zone boundaries, or even satellite data if the country you are selling into has a different opinion on things. Encryption's another one. Yeah. And, you know, it's what's interesting, as part of her Christmas present, I bought Amanda some maps to use as backgrounds for her teaching. And she said she had to get them approved. Oh, yeah. For teaching in other countries. Yeah, because they do things different. Yeah. And, over there. I didn't, and if you go to... I was unaware of that. I was like, well, I would have gotten ones that I knew for a fact could have been approved had I known that. Of course, that's my Enneagram 2 coming out. But, oh, that's a whole other story. Uh, Anyway, but yeah, I was just like, I would have done that if I had known. I didn't even, like, that's something I didn't even think about. Yep. And you don't until you run into it, really. Yeah, or until you deal with, like, the border between India and Pakistan or India and Bangladesh. There's areas there that are disputed. Mm-hmm. And so you got to show the maps one way for one group and a different way for a different group. And oh, by the way, if somebody finds out they're different, they're going to make a post on Hacker News about how you're taking the side of one government or another versus, no, I'm just trying not to have problems. Yeah. Because I saw that post last week. Yeah. I mean, and you can actually get into legal trouble in some of these countries for that stuff. Um, so it, it's a really big deal. The other thing is, is you have to consider the future and the past as being different countries as well, even within your own country, given that you can't even count on words retaining their meaning across longer periods of time or across short periods of time. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a time in the U.S., maybe what, eight, ten years ago, where if you wanted a picture of a wholesome family man, you could use Bill Cosby's picture. Mm-hmm. You're probably not doing that now. If you are, you probably, you got a bug that you need to go fix. Um, <laughs> it's not a good idea. So stuff changes just drastically anyway. And legal is, is part of that. And it's a lot of stuff that the developers don't deal with. And then it blows up and the developers get hit with it. Hey, you know what? At least everything will fit into my layout. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a resounding loud no. <laughs> if you have a limited width layout, there is going to be a German compound word that will wreck your day. Because there's always a German compound word for that. In fact, they probably have a word that literally means to wreck someone's day and laugh about it. You know what? That that is one thing. I have just to take a side step from everything here and just say I really love not just the German language. There's other languages that have this. I love that we have so many languages because there are things that 
take an entire sentence to express in English, but can be expressed in German in one word and other languages like that too. But German's the one that comes to mind because it's the one that you used here. Yeah. You may also have issues with things like the height of characters, causing them to get cut off Mm -hmm. at one of the sides, either the top, the bottom, left, or the right. Yeah. And you'll have things like ligatures. So you got two characters that are crammed together and it matters. They can't be separated. They have to be together instead of spaced apart. And so you'll get bit by that. And when you test all this stuff, you're going to probably have to literally look through every screen in every language you support Mm -hmm. to make sure that you're not screwing up somewhere or using a translation that makes it too long. And hey, you got to go back to the translators and go, hey, this has to fit in this amount of space. Or you go to the developers and say, I've got to make this menu wider now. Yeah. Well, really, when you do go to the translators, like you should know if you're doing your project management right, you should know the spacing there and be like, all right, translate this to fit in this space. But that doesn't always happen. Yeah, but how do you how do you express that? Right? Because you know, here's another thing. You have a lot of Chinese characters that are really dense. They got a lot of lines. Yeah. You may have to make that character bigger just so that it's readable. Mm. And so you don't even know that. There's that. And then also you're assuming proper project management. So I said, if you're doing your project <laughs> management right. If. <laughs> <laughs> the keyword is if. Uh, so speaking of if and lots of if statements, you also probably are going to be dealing with a lot of different screen layouts, right? Like there's a limited number of phone types that are sold in the U.S., if you're dealing with other countries, like especially once you get, you know, out east, you get, you know, if like you get to Japan, for instance, they have phones there that we will not have here mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, partially because it's Japan and they just like rocking that stuff. Right. But you got to test on that because a chunk of your population that is using your app is using that phone. Yeah. And it has screen dimensions that you're not used to, or it has features that you're not used to, or, it does something weird with font kerning or with the way colors pop is a little different. You're going to have to test that and you're going to run into it when you internationalize and you're probably not going to be able to come up with a copy of that phone to test with. Yeah. This also means that you can't assume someone on a desktop has 4k. Honestly, you can't really assume they have 1080p and you know, if you read the slides from my class that I'm taking this semester, 1080p is not even in existence yet. Yeah. That's how old the material is. <laughs> yeah. Of course, the, the funny thing is, like, I read that and then I look at the copyright at the bottom of the slide and it said copyright 2016. And I'm like, uh-huh. These no, it is these slides have not <laughs> been updated in well, yeah. let's put it this way. They talked about Windows XP being the new hotness. Yeah. Or they, you know, uh, like back, you know, back when, you know, they had tablets and you had to use like a stylus and cram it into the bud. (laughs) You know, yeah, 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 it's, uh, it's definitely a problem. And I mean, there's places that are impoverished that have old equipment from other countries or they have stuff that's made locally that you can't get outside that country. Like it may not even be legal to ship it out. Hey, you know what? There are first world countries where you have people using older equipment. Yeah, I still have some old monitors that I use mainly for like messing around with IoT stuff. But they're like for a while there, a couple of years ago, I was using them as a 
reading screen. So if I was like following a tutorial, I'd have like my main screen and then I'd have that one where I'd put the tu- like the tutorial information on. Yeah. It's not going to be high quality screen, but it's good enough to read from. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you may have people that have nicer equipment looking at it or that could have nicer equipment looking at it on older stuff too. Yeah, or you might, you know, ship your app to Korea and they've got like way better screens. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> yeah, and you're completely unprepared and your stuff is tiny and you're like, "Where where do you get a where do you get a 16K screen? <laughs> Why do you have that?" <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, you know, that's that's a legitimate type of problem. I don't think there's actually 16K screens out. I think there's 8Ks out now, but whatever. Yeah. So, another assumption at least all the text goes left to right. Uh, bro, it doesn't. Not in all languages. People actually make this assumption. Like, I don't know, maybe it's because of the martial arts and the, you know, the Eastern languages. But like, I've just like, I made the assumption that nobody ever made this assumption. But uh, yeah, I've known some good old boys that, you know, they they wouldn't try Chinese food because, you know, it's too spicy or might mess up their stomach. Like, they just haven't gotten out and lived anywhere. And they'll make assumptions like this. Fair enough. Some languages are right to left. There's also a lot of rules on a lot of things like how content gets filled in on a page Mm -hmm. that are just different in different places or different contexts. While you might reasonably conclude that this isn't so bad, there's also a lot of other stuff that you're going to have to worry about with this, especially if you're doing stuff like text editors or, you know, like really low level. If you have images in line with your text, this may make them look like nonsense based on how they're aligned and what those images are. Yeah. For example, you're describing a picture and you go, oh, this thing right here. But if it's coming from right to left, now it's on the, the, the thing right here is on the far side of that picture. Mm-hmm. This gets you more on documentation and other things um, than app screens, but it will still bite you. Also, these layout changes in text impact the way everything else is laid out. For instance, if your layout has changed due to the directional text changes, that means that the way you're positioned things like tooltips may have to change as well. Right, because now it may be over the text yeah. instead of over an empty space because everything's moved. Mm-hmm. And you may have something like a tabular report, and this may mess with stuff like column order. No. Like if you have you know, ID, name, some other crap, some other crap, and then a description, at the end, and that's the last column, and you don't care if it gets cut off or whatever. Well, if it's the rightmost column, now it's not in the right place, and it's going to take up space that it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. So you can really, uh, you can really kind of back yourself into a corner with this, and so it's, it's a lot more complex than you would think about. Well, hey, at least math is a universal language, and numbers are the same everywhere. Right, and we have faster than light travel. And dudes in red shirts get killed. I'm pretty sure I saw that episode of Star Trek. Um, that's <laughs> math is ki- like math is symbols pointing to things, right? Yeah. And so it's kind of it's better than regular language, but you're still going to run into problems. Numbers are the same in a lot of cases. The way they're formatted is not. Mm-hmm. For instance, in the Brazilian Portuguese you know locale, they'll use periods to break numbers apart into groups of three digits like we do in U.S. English, with a comma. Yeah. But some of them may not group digits in the same way either. So, for instance, if you have English in India, sometimes there's a two-digit 
thing and then a comma versus a three. I don't know why that is, but it's some kind of historical reason for that. Everyone has a concept of zero now, right? I think so. I think anybody that's probably communicating with the modern world, like I don't want to get on a boat, and go ask the North Sentinel Islanders about that. Yeah. <laughs> cause well, I guess they get a concept of zero cause that's your odds of surviving. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, so maybe they have it too. <laughs> I mean, like, cause I'm thinking of like Roman numerals. There's no zero. Right. In there. And then like other mathematic concepts, it's, it may be that may be there, but it may be different and they're not using like, not everyone uses the Arabic numbering system either. Yeah. Well, and I went down a rabbit hole of Russian math lessons. Oh, but that was fun. And the tricks that they do are, they don't look at numbers the same way and they still come out with the right answers, but they've got, just a different thing that they do over there with some things. So if you ever want to go down a rabbit hole on YouTube and you can find English translations, it's probably gonna be better for you. It's hard. <laughs> like you're just like, I can't yeah. because they've, they've, they've been it around. But anyway, people don't look at numbers the same way you might think. So this gets really interesting when you start having to worry about user input, especially across disparate systems. So let's say that you have a Brazilian Portuguese user and they're visiting India. And he's using his account on his boss's computer. But her computer is based off of English India, but he's using his account on her computer. The server being contacted is using U.S. English. How do you determine what a decimal point means? And the answer to that is, is you, you try to pass that off to a junior developer and get out of the room. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, somebody's getting hazed. I've already been hazed. It's your turn. Now, you got to bear in mind the impact that this will have on things like regular expressions you use for validation. Mm. Now, those can't be in your code either. They're going to have to come from somewhere else. Yeah. You know, you got to do that on front-end validation. So now you're going to have multiple ones that you're going to have to test in different locales. And remember, the plural of regex is regrets. Nice. So, yeah. Basically, this means a lot of extensive testing per language supported. Yeah, and probably testers in that language. Yeah, and per interaction between languages. Yeah, and you got to keep it straight what is dealing with a piece of data. Is it a computer? Mm -hmm. Is it a user on my end, or is it the public? Yeah. And it gets more fun if like your clients have clients and the language switches again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it gets ugly quick. So the next one, well, at least the translation only has to be done once by some guy we hire on Fiverr. This sounds like the misconception about Google Translate, but it's actually a little bit worse. Uh, people tend to hire translators for this stuff for the short term, but their software is constantly evolving. They always need new translations. Mm -hmm. This means that the international audience ends up behind on updates, support, security, patches, that kind of stuff, and you lose them. Internationalization is a continual process that supports localization across time. Uh, this means that it is no more fire and forget than any other business process that has to support changing circumstances. I would even go as far as to say there are probably companies out there who specialize in this. And oh, yeah. Like translator companies who you will probably have a, all right, you buy a package from us and just like keep us on retainer for when things yep. change. Or you have somebody on your team. That would be a smart business plan 
is what I'm getting at. It generally also means that developers will not be the primary people dealing with internationalized resources unless the developer speaks that language. It's basically just a waste of their time. Yeah, and they have to speak it well. It can't be like the 23-year-old that took you know two Japanese classes and watches anime, right? Yeah. Like it's got to be somebody that really knows the language. Mm-hmm. The developers simply have to make the system dynamic enough to have reasonable support for a variety of languages, and they have to maintain things such that that support stays in place. And that's all they can do. QA, documentation staff, and the support team will also have to support other locales as well. So you'll need people who know that language, know those idioms, know the ins and outs of that culture as well. Because you could have two different cultures using the same language. We talked about that between American English and British English. It's the same or language. Castilian Spanish and Mexican Spanish. Yeah. I mean, they're the same languages, <laughs> but they're different cultures, different idioms, different meanings for the same words sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, if you start talking in Castilian Spanish to people at the Mexican restaurant, they start talking to you in English because mm-hmm. they're like, this, this boy confused. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, well, at least my existing server infrastructure will work. Maybe. <laughs> However, there are probably assumptions that will become invalid in an internationalized application, and they'll do so quickly. Mm-hmm. You may have to have servers closer to the bulk of the new users. You know, if you're internationalizing, it's probably to take advantage of another market. Now, it may be like the Spanish speaking market in the U S where it's, you know, it's a growing demographic and we're just getting ahead of it and they're all here and fine, but it may be, Hey, I want to take advantage of, you know, the Portuguese speakers in you know Brazil. I want to take advantage of that market, not the speakers. Okay. Well, I'm going to probably want servers in Brazil instead of sending packets from New York city. Yeah. I mean, for instance, your app may have architectural assumptions that have to change because of the location of the servers or latency between those servers. Yeah. And you may also not be able to store your data about users in another country outside of that country. There's a lot of countries that are starting to crack down on that because they're tired of Facebook and Twitter and all these other apps hoovering everything up. Mm-hmm. So it is pretty likely that's going to increasingly become a thing. And if you're working with the government or for in a government a lot of those countries do not allow that data outside of their country. So yeah, if period, like, yeah, if you're, and then you have to look at, all right, what are we using any type of cloud solutions? What are we caching? Yeah. Like, and you, you have to look at, at that because it, it becomes an issue that you never thought of when you entered that country because it was nothing that you had to deal with in your own country. Yeah. Or are we putting something in a cloud environment in another country, in a place where people have hypervisor access that we don't know and we haven't vetted. Yes. And they can do industrial espionage Mm -hmm. on our product. There's a lot of stuff people don't think about on this that's really, really scary. But, you know, getting to the developer side, your code structure may have to change. Uh, So, for instance, you may have written a process that off hours does some kind of batch processing. Everybody's got crap like this in their apps, Mm -hmm. right? And now it has to happen at different times for different locales. You can't just kick it off at three o'clock in the morning, central time, US, and be okay. Yeah, because um, that could be, you know, 11 a.m. somewhere yeah, else. Yeah, in Poland. 
right? Yeah. I think it's going to be, yeah. I picked out a, that way. I, I may be slightly off. Random number just to see if you would try to guess where. Of course. <laughs> what do you think? Who do you think I am, bro? Oh. Um, you also have to consider security more thoroughly than you have been. You're now a much bigger target, and you probably have a big honking data transport pipe between that part of the app and your part of the app. Mm-hmm. And it's transiting a whole bunch of servers. You got to really think about that a lot more. Yeah. Also, you're likely going to have to collect data for reporting purposes from a variety of sources. And if management expects up-to-the-minute reporting on anything, they either have to change that expectation or pay the cost of it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen people that are completely unaware that you cannot exceed the speed of light Yeah, in digital communications. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, dude, if, if I could make this faster, I would work for NASA because they have stuff that needs that. <laughs> you know, like your, your TPS report doesn't matter, <laughs> you know, in the scheme of things compared to that. So guys, making your application capable of being localized to multiple languages and cultural environments is almost a requirement these days. The world is getting smaller and more interconnected, which is awesome because we're learning about so many other people in other cultures. This is definitely going to continue and to get smaller and to get more important over time. There is almost always a good reason to internationalize and localize your applications. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, I just want to you know, hammer on people a little bit. I want you to think bigger on stuff. Don't think, hey, what happens if this app gets up to 200 users? Think what happens if it gets to 10,000? Start looking at your systems that you're responsible for and start trying to figure out, okay, if this, if, if this thing goes up by 10x in scale or 100x in scale, what's likely to change? Because more than likely, what actually will happen is it goes up by 5x in scale and you underestimated the scaling factors or you underestimated the difficulty. So if you can get ahead of things and you think bigger, you'll usually see this stuff coming. And so start doing that. The internationalization is a great example of that. If you start out from the get-go going, hey, I'm probably going to have to support Spanish in here. I'm probably going to maybe have to support Chinese. You start thinking about that well before you have to do it. Because if management decides that you're going to support it next week, you're going to have a bad time. Mm -hmm. So think bigger. That's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to completedevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.